It's Dostazapod. This is your intro. It's the intro to Dostazapod. It's before all the rest of Dostazapod happens. There's this intro here. Uh, with that out of the way, let's go. Okay, we are in our secret Discord. You can gain access to this Discord from patreon.com slash Stasio. Sign up for five bucks, and uh, you'll get the keys to the kingdom. But we have a uh, question thread there, and I'm going to start going through these. There's some good ones. From the Robot Assassin, would Onel slash fellow Glios makers like yourself be eyeing a move of manufacturing for your products to other countries like Vietnam, India, slash Mexico? Uh, if delays persist with China and their zero COVID policy, at what point as a maker slash storyteller and most importantly a business do you finally throw in the towel on China and say, hey, I got to move production elsewhere because it's now negatively affecting my ability to run my business, bring in new money steadily and make a living for myself. And he links us to a Reddit thread that says U.S. manufacturing orders from China down 40% in unrelenting demand collapse. So this is a very good question. Very topical question, but there's a lot to sort of pick apart and digest here. And the first thing I want to caution everybody about is you have to be very leery about how you consume news in the Western world about China. Um, There is no surprise to me that there is such an uptick in anti-Asian rhetoric and violence and harassment and also a continued galvanized front Uh, across all of media, on both sides of the fence, both parties, uh, that demonized China. And if you need any further proof than this, look at the covers of uh, The Economist magazine or The Wall Street Journal. Look at their headlines about China, how they reference China, how they sort of portray China in their coverage. Uh, They are set up as an evil empire. Now, is some of that merited? Sure, absolutely. We can talk about the evils of the CCP and the Central Committee and mainland China and Beijing all day long. That's irrelevant to this story. We can talk about those factors for every major modern country. But when it comes to the Western media and how they cover China, how they cover places like Iran, uh, Venezuela, It really pays everybody to be very leery and very skeptical of the coverage and not take stuff as gospel. And I'm not saying this as somebody who is a, you know, a weekend warrior who, who, you know, gets into fights on Twitter all day long, who stays in, uh, you know, who who has no sort of lived-in life experience. I've been to China many, many times, been to Hong Kong, I've been to the Pacific Rim, I have friends in mainland China, I have friends in Taiwan, I have friends in Hong Kong, I have friends in Hong Kong who have moved to Taiwan, uh... I would say I have a better understanding than a pedestrian about the social and political implications of the Pacific Rim. And um, that by no means makes me an expert, but I do have some very real on-the-ground sort of shoe-leather experience in hearing people that live in China, what their goals are, what they think is coming, what what their concerns may be. So, um, you know, I tend to sort of speak a bit more realistically about uh, the entity that is China and their politics than I think people that may not have that experience, may not have, may not know a single person that lives in mainland China or who has ever been there. 
So um, I think that's important to understand when I'm laying this stuff out that it's a bit more than just idle speculation on my part. I, I know what that place looks and smells and feels like, and I know uh, what people have told me that live there and, and how they view their government, how they view their trajectory and things like that. So the headline U.S. manufacturing orders from China down 40% in unrelenting demand collapse, uh, that to me is a very uh, pernicious sort of thing. Um, demand collapse is happening everywhere, and part of that is just because supply chains are wobbling, and some are broken in some respects. So, it, you know, the they're already sort of front-loading that as, oh, the U.S. is pulling out of Chinese manufacturing. And I, that is a very purposeful thing because it further enforces this idea that the West is having right now, that we are on a collision course for nuclear war with China, and that somehow we can pick up the slack of manufacturing outside of China. And I hate to break it to people, but we cannot do that. China and the U.S. economy, and largely the, the global Western hegemony, are in lockstep. One cannot survive without the other. All of our medicine, or a good portion of our medicine, is made in China, okay? So uh, the idea that we are going to extricate ourselves from China and not have a full, I wouldn't say full societal collapse, but definitely a full economic collapse, is a farce. It's a fallacy. It is something that, uh, you know, would essentially be turning the gun on ourselves. So obviously the, the mind and the imagination wanders to, okay, well, why don't we start making things in the U.S. again? How do we undo this bad policy from, you know, the past 50 years uh, and motivate workers, invest in infrastructure, be able to just make our own insulin, for God's sake, and have a, a sort of a, a government uh, system for distributing something so basic and, and so necessary to so many people? Well, let me uh, preface, uh, let me uh, give you this premise. If we want manufacturing to happen back in the United States, guess what we're going to have to deal with? We're going to have to deal with labor unions. And I don't know how you feel about labor unions, but if you watch any of the major news outlets or listen to, <laughs> you know, the actions of the current administration, we are a very anti-union country. Uh, this rail strike um, sort of uh, bill that got passed through Congress is proof positive of that. Uh, we are incredibly hostile to organized union labor, and organized union labor is what we would need to manufacture because you require trade unionists to run these machines. That These are people that have the qualifications, understand the safety mechanisms that can do this sort of stuff. It's not people off the street that you can sort of, uh, you know, just give a, a quick weekend seminar to and then be up and manufacturing your own plastic goods. So... We have a contradiction that cannot sort of be reconciled. We are addicted to cheap goods and cheap plastic things and, and gadgets and gizmos. And we are allergic to paying a living wage and supporting organized labor. So this is what I, this is what I mean when I talk about a, a death spiral, a dance where we're in lockstep. But let's get back to the sort of opening of this question would O'Neill and fellow Glios makers be eyeing a move of manufacturing products in other countries? 
the answer is this is these conversations have already happened and they've been happening for me over the past four years and I keep coming back to the same issue and that is a lot of these factories in other places are still owned by China and a lot of these factories still get their steel molds from China so it does not eliminate much of any of the challenges and the considerations of manufacturing there is a certain Sofubi maker uh, they are based in the United States they get their tooling from China so uh, whatever you imagine you might be saving or helping yourself in terms of turnaround time or things like that you are still dependent on this one source for this very very crucial part of uh, the process the other part of it is that um, the way I conduct business, if I were to move manufacturing to Vietnam, which again, not really feasible because those are Chinese-owned factories, they depend on Chinese steel and tools, uh, or India or Mexico, I would have to go to these places and spend time training these workers in how to sort of make stuff up to the specifications I have. And that's not something I'm willing to do. It's also not something I'm willing to sort of farm out or just, you know, invest uh, twenty dollars to $30,000 in a project and hope it turns out okay. It is worth mentioning that China has eased a lot of their zero COVID policy. Uh, they are sort of easing up on the amount of testing required and uh, other sort of gimmies that they are doing to sort of appease, uh, you know, rumblings that are happening. But uh, largely, they consider uh, trading life for productivity to not be a calculation they're going to do, which we have no problem doing in the United States. Whether that's uh, morally correct or not, it is a life-saving mechanism. They are choosing to do that. It does not benefit them to close these factories down. Manufacturing is the lifeblood of the entire country. They're doing it through great pains. It is not sort of political maneuvering. They are genuinely concerned with containing the spread and keeping people alive, which is not a priority for us in this country. So to the second part of this question, at what point as a maker slash storyteller do I throw in the towel on China? Um, I throw in the towel whenever it is dictated to me that I can no longer make things there. And that may come due to high prices, that may come due to steel costs going through the roof, to timelines taking forever. I don't know when that will be. It will be at some point in the future. So I look at manufacturing toys as a limited engagement. I, I think I've spoken pretty openly that I'm not going to be able to do this forever. Um, there will come a point when there are not going to be any more manufactured Knights of the Slice figures over in China. And that's going to come before I leave this earth. So at some point in the next 40 years or so, um, I'm not going to be able to manufacture goods over there. But there's a big distinction we have to make here in this second part of the question. As a business and as a maker, that will be the end of manufacturing plastic goods. But as a storyteller, that has no bearing whatsoever. Storytelling is thankfully free, and I can do it through many different medias, and I will continue to tell stories as long as I'm drawing breath on this earth. So it will be sad 
when I placed my last order for a four inch plastic Night of the Slice figure. Uh, but it is an inevitability. It is coming at some point, and I've made my peace with that. Uh, it gives me a lot of faith and a lot of joy that people enjoy my stories and that there is, I don't want to say a business behind just the storytelling aspect, but there is an audience at least. There are people that embrace the short stories. There are people that are very excited about uh, card slicers, expansions. You know, there are a lot of ways we can continue to be the community we are and have some uh, consumption, I guess, or some enjoyment uh, without necessarily plastic goods. Um, let's say, just for, you know, theoretical, just argument's sake, uh, I have to do a full stop tomorrow. How long would I still be selling toys for? Um, there's probably about a year to 18 months, maybe two years worth of releases. So if I stopped tomorrow and I didn't order any new figures at all, I think that, you know, I would probably coast along for about two years. There would probably be some stuff that stay on my site forever, like the six-inch Rex Gannon figures, maybe some of the Just Toys uh, Mega Merge figures. But largely, I would cycle through everything I have, hopefully, you know, make my obligations to the AFOTM club, and then I would just simply sunset it. Uh, there may be a second life for Knights of the Slice in a licensing deal, you know, a, a bigger company might want to make a six-inch action figure as Thousand Toys did back in the day, and maybe there's some toy product that exists on that level, but, you know, I am, I understand where I am on the food chain, and that this is a love of mine with a timeline, and it will expire at some point, and so uh, I would encourage people to just be thankful of that, you know, right now at this moment, we get all these wonderful Glios makers and all these independent toy lines and we can enjoy them and they're expensive, but they're not, you know, you know, they're not like the most difficult thing to acquire. You know, some of these figures are $30 and, and going up, but uh, you can still get them now. You can still appreciate them. You can stockpile them. But uh, this era will end at some point. I don't know if it's, uh, you know, if we got a decade left, if we have less than that, but um, this is a very special thing. We grew up at a time that never existed before with cheap manufacturing in full swing, with the repeal of uh, childhood programming laws that allowed cartoons to be advertisements for the first time ever. We lived through the era of G.I. Joe and He-Man and Power Rangers and everything else that created this very unique moment in time where we get these little plastic things that are much more than little plastic things. They are sort of uh, avatars into another world. They are projections for our id into a, a physically strong body. But all of that will sunset at some point. So um, give your support where you can. It doesn't have to be just with me. I'm always encouraged when I see other patrons following other people's Patreons. You know, that makes my heart sing. We should be supporting as many independent artists as we can. And we should understand that this is a, a very fortunate time and it will come to a close at some point. And there is not, as far as I see it, a solution to manufacturing in other countries that will allow for this to happen. If I had to make the choice between moving production to Mexico or ceasing manufacturing new action figures, 
I would simply cease to manufacture new action figures. Continuing on with secret Discord questions from J. Ortiz 3. I've noticed that the early Knights of the Slice figures, Classic Knight, Old Knight, Hyper Knight, Ninja, Saima, Radic, and Rift Killer, don't have Glyos ports on the back like all your new releases do. Even the Slim Jim Verkill does. My question is, why did those early releases not include back ports, and how feasible would it be for you to add them to their molds? Uh, excellent question. So I always sort of preface any question about um, missing features on a specific figure with the ultimate trump card that you can always swap out any pieces, right? And I know this is, this is a bit of a, a lame response, but if you don't like that uh, a figure is missing a backport, these are Glyos compatible. So you can swap things out. I know some people are bothered by Verkill not having any articulation in his arms or legs, but he's not stuck in that position with those pieces. You can absolutely give him some classic night legs, whatever you like to do. So one, I understand this line of questioning and this critique, but it is not an imperative for me because we have the cross compatibility and that really can solve a lot of people's issues about which features may or may not be on a certain figure. And yes, there is going to be a small select amount of people that are purists and they want to have a back port but have a classic knight figure. Um, but, you know, that's just not just not in the cards. Um, the amount of money and time it would take to sort of add these to the molds is not going to be worth it. And really for a back port, you need a sort of slightly raised flat area. So something like the Classic Knight, we would actually have to build up onto it. It would not be as simple as sort of drilling a hole and, and having that be the backport. It, it would not have a flat sort of 90 degree fit for everything. As to why the original ones do not have a backport, uh, one, honestly, I didn't know how long this line was going to exist. And to Matt Doughty's credit, he was always pushing me to add back ports or foot pegs or things like that. Uh, but I always rejected it because I didn't want to break up the sculpt of a figure. And I wanted to kind of honor the artist's vision for what it was. I mean, the Classic Knight was sculpted by Justice Joseph, who, you know, has not been able to sculpt another figure, but has gone on to this crazy, illustrious Hollywood career. I believe he designed... I want to say Mothra in the new Godzilla films, but I could be mistaken. But he is a he is the go-to creature feature designer guy. He has done a lot of the special effects you see on all the WB DC shows, um, all of the like the big creature characters and stuff like that. He he's an incredibly incredibly prolific and successful artist, and I got him right before he made that big transition into Hollywood. And so, uh, who am I to? <laughs> sort of metal with a Justice Joseph sculpt, I think, you know, part of being a good collaborator is honoring what's important about the work that these people are spending their time and putting their life force into. The other minor aesthetic thing is, I don't really like um, holes on figures where it's not sort of explained with their costume, if that makes sense. So I, I'm pretty sure the majority of the figures that do have back ports have a sort of sculptural 
reason for them to be there. Like with Verkill, it, it is part of this harness that he wears. With the uh, Bugwing, obviously this is a, you know, a mechanical suit they're wearing and it's intended to uh, be plugged into. And, and so there's a almost a narrative with the sculpt that explains why there is a backport. And I didn't want to just have holes on the figures that weren't, were sort of an afterthought. They weren't part of the sculptural process. And this is also why I, I don't have footholds for sort of footstands also, because it's like, yeah, I, I don't know that that, like, narratively makes sense. I, I know this is a very, like, uh, a very nitpicky preference of mine, but it is kind of, you know, it is truthful that that is, it's a factor. I think aesthetically, uh, I have made a choice to sort of avoid that when it didn't make sense for what I imagined the character to be. Um, that being said, like, if I had a magic wand, would I go back and, and have backports be in every single figure and have a sort of sculptural reason or rationale for them? I think so. I, I think it would arguably be a, a little bit better of a line, but I never foresaw things like the Bugwing coming when I was doing the classic night. I, you know, there was no way for me to imagine it would grow to be this enormous thing that we all enjoy today. So... Um, I, I think it's a totally fair question. It's a totally fair critique. Uh, I do think, you know, ultimately people can swap out torso pieces as they see fit. And as more and more new figures are introduced, you're going to have more and more torso options that also have a back port. So, um, you know, I think over a long enough timeline, you're probably going to be able to have a, a wide variety of different outfits and looks and things like that um, before, uh, you know, before the line ceases to exist. Moving along to the next Discord question from our good friend Charlie Pope. The new Jagged Age trailer for Card Slicers is incredible. I can't wait to get my hands on these. It is a shame they most likely won't get figures, especially of that Melty Frog. So I've been getting into RPGs a lot recently. What are the chances we could get an RPG based on this story or some 3D models of minis? I know that not a ton of people downloaded them, but I have printed everyone so far just need to paint, and Jagged Age would be incredible to play in. Thank you very much. Uh, well, first I would say somebody sent me a reminder to release a new 3D mini file because it has been a while, and uh, I just stopped doing them because it was literally like, I think, three or four people would download them and use them, and it, you know, it. if I'm being honest, it was a little discouraging. But uh, I think we're overdue, so somebody send me a reminder, and I will release a new mini to the patrons. I think that's more than fair. Um, here's, here's the deal with RPGs. Um, I have tried since the start of Knights of the Slice with the classic knight to get an RPG out there into the world. And there's been many, many false starts. Some of it has been, uh, my own homebrewed ideas and some have been talking with and consulting other people. Uh, I've tried to hire other people and it just kind of never manifested an RPG is a lot of work for something that very few people will enjoy. And it will probably be the same as the sort of downloadable 3D files. It's going to be probably less than 10 people that get to experience the RPG. But it is as much work as, you know, any short story or any production I might do. Like, it's a it's a ton of critical thinking and not for a, a whole lot of uh, sort of... I'm not getting a lot of juice out of that squeeze, if you know what I mean. 
That being said, I do have a couple ideas of a proper RPG module that fits on top of card slicers. So you would essentially utilize your card slicer character cards as a stat sheet. And obviously you would expand and level up and things like that with additional supplemental material. But the combat is largely the same. So that is something sort of, you know, on my back burner. I think also for those who have watched the sort of rush mode demos and in some respects the Jagged Age expansion, these are all me slowly getting into that position where we could have an RPG that's a meaningful experience for the few people that sort of want to play that. Um, all of this is, you know, I think where projects go bad, especially in the crowdfunding sphere, is when they are too ambitious and they try to do too much. And we've all backed campaigns and we've all seen hilariously bad uh, implosions of companies and ideas that just were too big. That they, they sort of, their heart was in the right place, but they just could not sort of execute on the idea that they had and what they had sort of promised people. And that happens all the time. So I'm leery of that. And because of that, I purposefully curtail things to be much smaller projects and, and things that I can actually feasibly get done. And so it does take me a couple of years to build out things that are of a grand vision that I might have had originally. But I think that there's something important about iterating slowly and making sure everything works. And in some respects, Card Slicers is just the very first step in the direction of a overall gaming strategy for Knights of the Slice and Jagged Age and, and all these things. So um, I think slowly we will get there and it will fully manifest and it will be solid when it does, more importantly. The other thing I would say is I encourage people to homebrew their own RPG rules and modules and things like that for Knights of the Slice. Uh, if you're going to sell said things, please check in with me first. Uh, but if you're just going to do it just for fun with your friends, like you have my blessing, you know, I, I think probably we could have a pretty good discussion on the Discord about what an RPG module should and should not have. I'm sure there are other people that have ideas already. So, you know, maybe it's something we kind of look at a non-commercial sort of fan-run thing. Like, I, I, I could be amenable to uh, something like that. So, something to think about. I'd like to get there someday. Uh, it's, you know, it's not something I have the bandwidth to do at this time. Before we get into this next question, which is a very good question, I do want to take a moment and acknowledge the artistic achievements of the Squires of the Slice this past year. It seems like uh, people are really ramping up their creative ambitions and showcasing them in places like our Discord and on Instagram. And it really, uh, I think that's the, the single greatest feature of this fan base is how creative everybody is. Um, you know, I, th I think we should give a big shout out to uh, Gordon McKinnon Hall, who embarked on the long journey of uh, starting to sculpt and picking up a 3D program and, you know, slowly, inch by inch, making his way in that space. A very difficult sort of uh, path to master, but he's, uh, he's really cranking out some pretty incredible stuff. Um, I would also say everybody's probably pretty excited about Kenneth West taking the step into 3D sculpting as well after producing 
and churning out these amazing short films uh, month after month. Really been quite incredible. Of course, Ryan Rusby and all of his motion graphics, they might go underappreciated because they are best sort of viewed in a live music setting or on our Twitch streams, but there's a ton of work to go into them. And uh, I know they're not always front and center, but uh, really fantastic stuff that he's cooked up. And now this is by no means a complete list of everybody who's put out some amazing artwork or pieces of work or custom builds that have really, uh, you know, made me very happy this year. Um, But it is, you know, a, a small sampling of the sheer creative force of all of us together. And I think that, you know, that's really something that you don't find very often on the internet and you don't find in fan bases is a burgeoning uh, talent pool of people that, you know, are really putting time into the craft and and also providing feedback and sharing with other people. It's This is a, a rare thing to cultivate these days. So um, I just wanted to say, you know, everybody's progress out there is pretty incredible. And maybe not everybody's a creative type and that's okay too because you still play your part by giving feedback to those people who are putting it out there and by most importantly supporting independent artists so you absolutely get a shout out as well i think you know in this ecosystem we need all types of people and uh you know just all of us sort of coming together and being pleasant to deal with and being nice to each other i think that is you know such a rare thing these days and I really I commend everybody speaking of massive talents our next question is from Ian Amling a colleague of mine recently said something I found interesting he like me is an avid toy collector and he like me has over the past few years started to fall out of love with collecting his comment was as soon as you sculpt your first figure you'll look at the whole collecting community differently you'll want to create and contribute rather than accumulate What's your take on this? I think this is uh, very astute. I think that the day I started working as a intern for free at a toy company was the day um, I stopped being a collector in many regards. You know, you, you learn how the sausage is made. You see how much of toy making is just compromising. You are absolutely compromising your vision. Um, not that that is necessarily a bad thing. That's not a net negative but um yeah it does the the veneer or the i would say the compulsion to collect every and anything quickly dissipates for me and i often find myself having to make the decision between buying um you know an expensive figure from japan or putting that money into a new figure that i'm going to run that's my own creation in a color scheme i'd really like to see And it should be no surprise that usually buying somebody else's toy loses out to the idea of creating a brand new figure in the production line. But uh, I would also say that uh, I get a lot out of collecting. And I find that when times are a little harder, it's kind of nice to just focus on something I don't have to worry about every specific detail and paint app about and just kind of experience something as a consumer or as a fan so I think that the right ratio for creation to collection for me 
is about 90% creation, 10% collecting. And when I'm not really in the right head frame or I just need to feel some comfort or some distraction, I think that ratio kind of shifts to 80% creation, 20% collecting. Um, but, uh, you know, I believe that these are both sort of things that need to exist in my life. And, uh, sorry, I'm very distracted because there's a family of deer walking across the stream <laughs> and I'm just completely ensorcelled by them. You know, I think there are, there are times when I'm sort of totally locked in and giving a hundred percent to production and creation and many months go by and I've, I've not bought or pre-ordered or gone to a store or experienced any part of the end consumer experience within toy collecting and I miss stuff you know uh, it is very easy to sort of have blinders on to your own work and not understand that at the end of the day other people are going to purchase or listen to or consume what you're making and it is part of the cycle to go and experience that you know I think there's also an argument to be made here for understanding joy versus compulsion and that is a very hard distinction to make and the lines between those two emotions are blurred and they are intertwined sometimes and it sort of takes a lot of constant self-examination to figure out am I being motivated by compulsion or is this something actually I'm enjoying that it, you know will have some kind of reward for me and uh, you know I think that absolutely applies to uh, collecting, you know, no doubt in my mind. I would also say, like, pretty simply, like, a, a you know, spending $5 on a blind bag toy at Five Below or wherever, um, that is always going to be a less rewarding experience for me than just going to somebody's Patreon and backing them for $5, even somebody I don't know, even somebody who doesn't even make anything I care about. Um, I'm often on these Patreon ambassador uh, conference calls, and I will just go and look up the people on the call, find their page, and just back them. And I don't give a shit that they're making tea cozies or collage, perish the thought. Um, but I throw them five bucks and, uh, you know, just kind of let it roll. Just put some more uh, money back into the economy of, of Patreon. And that five dollars spent... Even if I never even look at this content, um, I think I get a lot more out of it than, for example, going to Five Below and buying this very cute, old-timey cartoon version of SpongeBob, which actually, now that I'm looking at it, I'm quite happy with that purchase. $5 well spent. But yes, generally, I agree with this. I think, uh, you know, I, it is important to have some creative output in life. I think that, you know, the few people that have sort of uh, been unpleasant who are long gone from the Night of the Slice community, thankfully. I, I think that for them, there was only collection, right? And it was an obsession. And uh, they were not people that participated with any aspect of the creative process. Um, whether even it's something as simple as liking somebody else's zine or custom or build or, um, you know, going so far as to put pen to paper. Uh and you know what? I, this is probably not the right group for those people. They, they've they long moved on, and uh, I think we're better for it because 
everybody here uh, has some level of balance between creation and collecting. Um, not to say everybody's writing their own comic books, but I think pretty much everybody's doing different builds with their figures. Everybody's, you know, participating in the Discord. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a really nice place we got here. So, thank you for the uh, very thoughtful question. Let's see what else we got. Next question from a newer patron. Big welcome to Noah Sirkin. I know the holidays are right around the corner, but my mind's still stuck in Halloween. Have you thought of making a ghost of Captain Cutlar from Scooby-Doo as a Halloween diver release? Or similarly, the spooky space kooks as a diver or bug wing release? Uh, these are fair questions. I definitely, um, you know, I consumed some Scooby-Doo in my time. And I do think that the villains are by far the best part about Scooby-Doo. And, and some of them are pretty iconic and pretty classic. Um, I don't know that those would be in the cards for me personally. They they don't really... There's no uh, grand provocation to me to, to conquer those uh, in figure form. Especially considering I think we have had... Um, some action figure forms of those characters. I want to say, um, boy, the uh, company's name is escaping me at the moment. I believe it was a, a British company. I had to look it up. Yes, Character Toys out of the UK. They have done uh, figures of these. Uh, I, I'm not sure if they've done these spooky space kooks, but possibly. Uh, and they're not so far out of scale with Knights of the Slice. I, I think actually they might work okay alongside them. Um, so I don't think I'm going to personally do them, but I do think over a long enough timeline, uh, you will have enough pieces in which to build these characters. You're going to have a lot of base material that'll fit pretty well for them. So I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't lose all hope. Next up, we got a question from Gordon McKinnon Hall. Gordon, as I understand it, has made the trip to Mecca. He is in Japan. He's gone to Nagano Broadway. He is retracing the steps laid out in the Toy Pizza Japan trip videos. And uh, we wish you well, Gordon. Hope you're having a good time and eating lots of ramen over there. He's got a uh, pretty hard-to-answer question, but I'm going to do my best. If you were to select a composer or musical artist other than Zed Star 7 to score a Jagged Age adaptation, who would it be? This is a very difficult question, but... Um, you know, the Jagged Age animatic, which is a, a gift that every patron can look at when you uh, go to my Patreon, there is a welcoming post, it's pinned at the top, and it has links to a bunch of stuff that is not really widely circulated, and one of those is the Jagged Age animatic. I spent quite a bit of time, uh, many years back, pitching the Jagged Age as an animated series, and, uh, you know, sat sat in the same room with some real Hollywood bigwigs, let me tell you. And of course the answer was no, but um, I put a lot of time into it, and it is available for patrons to look at. And the trailer, sorry, not trailer, animatic is scored with Trent Reznor and uh, Nine Inch Nails uh, Creative Commons songs. Now, many people may not know this, but Trent put out a bunch of music that is free to use and people can commercialize and, um, you know, there's some really wonderful instrumental tracks and it was very kind of him to do that. Uh, most famously, Old Town Road, 
song by Little Nas X. That was from a Nine Inch Nails Creative Commons track. Uh, I do think that at a certain point they had to work out some kind of deal um, with the use of that song. I know Trent and Atticus Rose are credited as producers on that song and won a Grammy for it. Um, but, uh, you know, a great gift that he put out there into the world and the music fit perfectly for the mood I was trying to convey. So if this is a dream world thinking and there's no limitations, yes, I would want Trent Reznor and Atticus Rose to score a Jagged Age adaptation. If I can't have that, um, let me just suggest someone else. I am admittedly a very late to life, um, convert of the work of Aphex Twin. Um, never really listened to them, uh, with any regularity at any other point in my life. I had a lot of British friends. They were obsessed with Aphex Twin. Uh, I find it to be unremarkable. It, it never appealed to me. I, I didn't understand what I was listening to. And I think in many respects that's because Aphex Twin music is always ahead of the curve, right? It's very challenging. Uh, some of it can be very tough to listen to. And I just didn't really have any context for it. It just seemed like things that uh, stoners listened to in their dorm room at uni. And um, I didn't see the appeal. But all that changed for me a few months ago when Trash Theory, another great Patreon you should all be following, did this video about Aphex Twin. What Trash Theory does best is really make you fans of whatever he's talking about. Um, and it, it completely converted me, you know. Uh, watched the video, heard all these little clips of songs, some of them I recognized, some I didn't. And then I did a deep dive, and I gotta tell you, hugely talented musician, and really the first to do a lot of things. Um, I don't think he's recognized as quite the innovator in electronic music that he is. But I suppose I would put him as my second choice, assuming uh, Trent and Atticus are too busy for the Jagged Age adaptation starring Timothy Chalamet. That's it for today's Distazapod. Thanks for listening. To play us out is Zed Star 7. <laughs>